So uh, we're going to be in Acts chapter 2 today, but I want you to start here uh, with a picture with me, okay? I want you to picture a few pioneers, and they're in thick brush, you know, high brush, higher than they can see above, and they're, they're blazing a trail, and they have woodcutters with them and everything, they're blazing this trail, and they're trying to knock down uh, a, a trail as they, as they pioneer. And, uh, but it's an overcast day, and they can't see the sun, and they also don't have a compass. And that's a little tricky because now they don't know if they're going in a straight line, if they're staying on coordinates or not. So uh, they, they're, they're going and they're going and they're getting more and more concerned. Like, how do we know we're going straight? And they start heading up this really steep hill. And as, after they've been going up the hill for a while, they just decide we're going to stop and we're going to turn around and we're going to clear out a whole section. Now, why would they clear out this whole section? Because they want to be able to look back from where they are and they want to look back on this path and see how straight the path is. Because they want to know if they've been going straight. And the further back they can see, the closer to the origin they can see, the more confidence they have that they're not deviating from their coordinates. As a matter of fact, after first service, someone told me that that's basically how the Mason-Dixon line was formed. It was eyeballed like that. It, wasn't, it was only later that it was, uh, uh, you know, surveyed in a different way. And, and it was like they, they realized how good of a job these guys did with basically just eyeballing it like that. But that's the picture I want you to see is some people up on a hill who they, they can't see around the brush. They can't see the sun. They don't have the compass. So they look back and they can see how, how straight the line is. And sometimes when we're trying to figure out what the next step is and where to move from here, we don't need to just know our surroundings, and, and we don't need to just look ahead. Sometimes we need to stop, we need to turn around, and we need to look back. And we periodically need to take toll and say, Have, are, are we going in a straight line here from the beginning? You know, uh, I, we'll, we'll unpack that a little bit more, but I, I want to uh, also have you think about when, when this building does get expanded, um, there's going to be walls that are moved and places that things are added on to and everything. And when a designer, an architect, and a builder come to, to figure out where they're going to attach certain pieces to walls and everything like that, are, are they, are they going to come in here and kind of use a stud finder behind the drywall to figure out where the supports are and kind of kick around, maybe drill a hole behind the wall and look to see where the plumbing is behind the walls? And what they're going to do is they're going to pull out the blueprints and they're going to see the design, and they're going to see how everything was laid out so that they know how to move into the next phase. And it may be those blueprints, in, in the case of our church, they even have expansion plans on them. And, you know, it, so often I find that organizations, including churches, can get so caught up in what the current trends are in, in their line of business or their work or in a church and in the church around them, looking at what the current trends are, what's successful, looking at the people around them, how do you get quick success. We get so focused on what's immediately around us that sometimes we can really lose touch with the core of what we're about. You know, what are we designed for? What is this whole thing about? You know, and I know there's another problem. I mean, I, I know that if we get hung up on history and if we idolize our history and say this is how we've always done things and they're sacred cows, that we're not willing to, to reinvent how we do what it is that we do. But here's the thing, is that sometimes we get so concerned about immediate success that we lose touch with what it is we're actually about. Start to try to fill seats or grow things or, or just expand stuff. And we forget to stay grounded because we're not looking back enough. We're not looking at the blueprints. We're not looking to see if we're on a straight line from the beginning. 
you know? And so for us as a congregation, you heard Josh and I last week get up here and represent the board and say, we feel it's time to push pause on the building project as a board. And the reason is because there's indicators that say, we're not at a place yet in maturity as a congregation, in maturity and faith where we're willing to, where we're able to do what it is that God's actually calling us to do. And so we need to deepen a little bit. And so we need to look back and look at the original design for our lives as a church and the blueprints for what is this supposed to look like? We need to look back and say, how do we match up and how can we grow closer into that? You, does that make sense? You understand that? And so when we look back to the blueprints for the church and when we look back at the origin, where else do we have to look other than in the word, right? I mean, this is our foundation. This is, this is the definitional text for, for what the church is about. And when you look back, uh, you, you find yourself in Acts chapter 2 because that's the, that's the birth of the New Testament expression of the church. The church actually started back with Abraham when God made a covenant with a people to be his people. That's when the church actually starts. That's when we call it the ecclesia, the gathering, you know, and uh, th- that's when it starts. And yet in the New Testament, it takes on a whole new form because there's like, this is when the Holy Spirit comes and it indwells his church and, uh, and this is the new expression. And that's where we find the, the era that we're in of God's expression of the church. That's where we find ourselves. This is the beginning of our heritage in this era of God's expression of church is in Acts chapter 2. Okay, so that's what we're going to be looking at in this series over the next four weeks from today, four more weeks after today. So five-week uh, series. And we're going to be looking at Acts chapter 2 because it affords us that foundation. Now, as we get into that, I, I, there's something I want to say before we get into Acts, about the book of Acts. And it's that the title of Acts, um, Acts, is actually short for Acts of, uh, Acts of the Apostles, is what that's short for. And the Apostles, uh, you know, this book, you see all the stories about the Apostles, originally the, the 12 in Jerusalem, and then you see Peter and his journeys, and you see Paul on his journeys, see all this stuff, which is why the book got named Acts of the Apostles. But that's not actually scriptural. The, the, the name Acts wasn't there in the beginning with the book. That was a name given to it afterwards, I believe, by Ignatius, like in, in uh, 200 uh, AD. And so, like, this was later on that that name was given to the text, to this book. And I don't, I don't, it's not a completely inappropriate name, but I don't think it's a complete name for this book because it doesn't describe it as well as at least I see it working out. Now, th- this is a history book, and there's not a whole lot of history books in the New Testament. There's a lot of history books in the Old Testament when you see the Chronicles and the Kings and Samuel and Exodus and, and, uh, and Genesis, and you see all these history books. But this is, the, in, the, in the New Testament, there's the four history books of the gospel that document Jesus' life on earth, and then there's the book of Acts that document, um, you, you know, after Jesus has, has returned to heaven and now descended in the form of the Spirit and indwelled his church, what happens? And so this book, this is written by Luke, and uh, Luke wrote the Gospel of Luke. This is the, his second installment. So this could be the second book of Luke. It could be called just the, book, the second book of Luke. Um, bo- or if it's going to be called Acts, and it's talking about describing the acts of something, I, my, I would prefer that it would be called the Acts of the Holy Spirit as opposed to the Acts of the Apostles because this book isn't actually about people, is it? Is this book primarily about people? This book's primarily about God. Isn't it? It was awesome. In first service, I asked if this book is primarily about people. And there was a, Gavin Schneider was sitting right here in the front. And he said, no! And I was like, yeah, who is it about? And he's like, God! I'm like, there you go! Like, if a, if a kid that age can say it, like, it's obvious. This book's about God, right? That's what it's about. And so the book of Acts, it's not about the Acts of the Apostles. It's not about what they do. It's about 
first in the Gospels, we see the history of God in, the for, in human form, in human flesh, coming and living among us. Then he ascends and goes to heaven, and he comes back in the form of his Holy Spirit and indwells his church. And all the history we see is actually the history of the Holy Spirit moving in his church. And so I'd prefer that this would be called the Acts of the Holy Spirit instead of the Acts of the Apostle. And the reason that's important for us is because we now, we're not the apostles. You know, that's not what we are. But we are the people, if we are true followers of Christ, are the people who the Holy Spirit now indwells within us. And we are still the expression of God's work here on earth as the Holy Spirit moves through us. Because we have the same promise that the Holy Spirit lives in us if, in fact, we are followers of Christ. Now, I, I want to I put a little caveat on that, and that's that to be a true follower of Christ does not mean that we just have some interest in Christianity or we have some Christian disciplines in our life or even that we just have understood some doctrine. It doesn't even mean that we've said a sinner's prayer at some point in our life. What it means to be a follower of Christ is, it's kind of like this. If, if Jesus was filling out a tax form, you know, W-4 form, and he, he filed himself as head of household, you know, that's Jesus, head of household. And when it comes to the family of God, head of household. We're told that in the body of Christ, he's the head, right? Head of household. Anyone, then, then you get to, there's a line where you get to put how many dependents you have, you know, on your tax form. And if Jesus could claim us as dependents, you know, that we are dependent on him. We live within his home. He's the authority over our life. He's the one who's the breadwinner. He holds the bank accounts. He's the one who's in control of the whole thing. We submit and exist and live within him, not on our own. We're not in control of our lives, and he's an ancillary part of it. He's not a counselor or just an advisor to our lives that we're in control of. He's the head of the household, and we're dependents on him. If that's the kind of following of Christ that we have, if he's the one who's in charge, he holds, he holds the control over our lives and we've submitted to that, then we're followers of Christ. And what we're told is, is if we come to him to follow him, that out of us, and he tells us this in John chapter seven, he says, any of you who are thirsty, come unto me and, and, and out of you will flow streams of living water. And the next verse says, when he said this, he was talking, referring to the spirit who had not yet been revealed to them because he was still with them. But once Jesus ascends, the Holy Spirit comes and descends and all those who trust him and depend on God and follow God, the Holy Spirit comes in and dwells them. All of that is important because as we're trying to figure out where to go with our lives, where to go with our church and all of that, and we're climbing up the hill and we clear out the path and we look back and see how far we've come, it takes us 2,000 years back to the book of Acts and we see a Pentecost moment where the Holy Spirit comes into his church and indwells his church and says, and then we see how it is that he calls them to live. If we want to know how we're supposed to live, then we look back at that and we realize that's our heritage. Okay, that's who we are. That's our, it says we were grafted into the family of God. It used to be the story of the Jews, you know, that they were the people of God, but it says that we now are children of Abraham. We've been born into this new family, and that is our actual heritage if we are followers of Christ. And we look all the way back to the blueprint, and we look all the way back to the origin, and we read this text that we're going to read today, and that is why we look back at it. Because we believe that if we're a follower of Christ, the Holy Spirit's indwelling in us, and now it's our job, and it's our call to be the expression of God's work on earth. If God wants to do something on earth and express himself on earth, Guess who that is? It's those of us who have the Holy Spirit dwelling within us because we're dependents on him. All right, that leads us to reading this thing. 
okay, which I'm really excited about. So I'm going to have you stand with me, and we're going to read Acts 2.42, which is the verse we'll be in for the next five weeks, but I'm also going to read down to verse 47, okay? So I'll have you stand in honor of God's word, and we will read. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, and to the fellowship, and to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. Selling their possessions and goods, they gave to anyone as he had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. May God add his richest blessings to the reading of his word. You can have a seat. All right, so here we are. There's two big things today that we got to discover from this passage, okay? The first is the order of this passage. From Acts 2, 42, the very beginning of it, down to 47. We need to, the, the order of this is very important. And the way that we're going to see this and the way we're going to find this is first by understanding the context. This is what happened. Jesus died on a cross. We all know it. Then Jesus rose from the dead. He conquered death. He displayed to anyone who cares to see that he is the king. He is the Messiah. He holds the keys over all of it. He holds the keys over death. He can rise above death. He has proven himself as God, as creator, as redeemer, as all of those things. And once he rose from the dead, he goes and he gets back to his disciples, okay? And he starts sharing with them, explaining to them all this stuff that they're like, what is going on? You know, like they were grieving the loss of the Savior, and now he's alive. And then he shows them, and he's explaining and teaching them all this different stuff. And basically what he's saying, well, well, we'll get to that. And he gets to the place where uh, eventually he's sitting on a hill, and he's about to ascend into heaven. And these guys are trying to figure out, like, okay, so what's happening now? And you see them ask in chapter 1 of Acts, in verse 7, or in in verse 6, so when they met together, they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? They're trying to figure out, what's going on? Are you about to restore the kingdom of Israel? He says this to them in verse 7. It is not for you to know the times or the dates the Father has set by his own authority. So he's like, you don't know what's about to happen. That doesn't matter. That's not important. Here's what's important, verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Okay, so he gave them a job description. Here's the job description. You guys are going to be witnesses of mine. And what that means is, you saw me rise from the dead. I'm standing here with you now. You saw that all the words are true, and they've been proven true, because you've witnessed me, not only over the whole course of my ministry with you, but you've also seen me die, and you've seen me rise from the dead. Now your job is just to be witnesses to that, to tell the story. And in in Matthew chapter 28, this conversation is explained again, another part of it. In verse 18, we call this the Great Commission. It says, "Then, then Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you, even to the end of the age. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. And this is the picture of Jesus, when we call the Great Commission. So as Je- this is everything 
before we read this, pas- that w- this passage we've just read, this is all the context, okay? It was, only, it was only just a little bit ago that Jesus rose from the dead. And now he's been hanging out teaching with them, and now he gives them a job description. He gives them a mission, something to do. All right, I'm about to go to heaven, guys, okay? I'm about to ascend, and this is your job. Over the last three years, I've been Mr. Miyagi, and you guys have been Danielsons, okay? And this is what's happening. I've been training you and equipping you, helping you to learn everything that's been going on. Why? Because now you have a job. You have a job, and here's your job. You're going to be my witnesses, and you're going to make disciples of all the nations. You're going to start right here in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria, and then to the other most parts of the earth. That's the job description they got. And, then he, and, and right before that, he said, and by the way, you're, you're going to need to be waiting in Jerusalem. Just chill out there because John the Baptist baptized you with water, but I'm about to baptize you with the Spirit, and then you'll have the power to do everything you're supposed to do. So go chill out in Jerusalem and gather together. Then I'm going to fill you with the Holy Spirit, and after that, this is your job. That's the context, okay? Then what happens? They're sitting in the room. They obey him. They're praying, and all of a sudden, Acts chapter 2 says this. It's incredible. When the day of Pentecost came, this is the first verse in chapter 2, when the day of Pentecost came... They were all together in one place. And suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Okay, so here's the moment where God, this is the story. Remember, this isn't the story about people. This is the story about God. And Jesus ascended. They go and they wait. Now the Spirit descends and comes and fills them. And we're picking up the story again. All right, God is alive and active and working in our world again. Except this time, instead of he himself coming in flesh, in human flesh, he's coming to indwell failed but redeemed human flesh and live within them. And he calls it the church. And what we're told is that day, Peter overflows with speech from the Holy Spirit and 3,000, we'll read it right here, verse 41 of chapter 2. This is the last verse before our portion of it, our portion of the text. It says, those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. 3,000 in one day, that's a lot of baptizing. Man, I don't know what the line was like, but it seems like great adventure. Just put them in, the, uh, in one of those flume rides or something, you know, that goes underwater. You know, because that's a lot of people that you've got to get through the, the baptismal waters. 3,000 people. Okay, so that's what happened. It's all, that's all the context that leads up to that. That's the last verse. Holy Spirit descends. 3,000 people receive the message. Now, the very first thing we hear after that in the text is the first snapshot, the first picture, the, the blueprints, the origin of the church. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. And then all the way down in verse 47, down at the end of that portion, it says, And the Lord added to their number daily, daily, those who were being saved. So, all of that to say this. The order is so important here. What did Jesus ask them to do? What was the last thing they heard Jesus tell them to do? To make disciples. That was the last thing he told them to do. Last thing was, you will be my witnesses. Jerusalem, Judea, and the uttermost parts of the earth, go make disciples, baptizing them. 
and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. So they have this job description. You know, we know what we're supposed to do for God. Now, in verse 47, who's the one who is adding to their number daily those who are being saved? The Lord is doing it. So he gives them a job description, and then he fulfills it. Isn't that kind of weird? And what is it that they're doing? Does it say that they devoted themselves to evangelism and to the spreading of the gospel to, the, to people who don't know yet? As a matter of fact, in this whole passage from, from 42 to 47, there's not one mention of them doing evangelistic work. Not one mention of them doing that. What's interesting is, is the order. You see, what's happening is, is that God is helping them to fulfill the responsibility that he gave them, and yet their commitment and their focus is not actually on fulfilling the job description that he gave them. You see what it is that they're focused on? In, in verse 42, it says they devoted themselves to the teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Are any of those things evangelistic? They're not evangelistic. It's all internal. If we follow God up, in, and out, that's what we say all the time here at Park Ford Church, right? We have three directions we follow them, up in prayer and in praise, and, and then there's this internal thing where there's community and there's getting into the word, and then there's this external thing where there's outreach, right? And, but are they focusing on the out? No, and yet that's what God told them to do, wasn't it? To, to reach out, to be the witnesses. To go. And this is, here's the deal. Listen, this is really important. Is this order? It's part of the blueprints. It's part of the design. See, we have an ability to, we have a desire at times to get the cart before the horse. What we want to do is when we have a job description, we want to throw our efforts at getting it done. And we want to do whatever it takes to get it done. And sometimes we lose touch with the, with the very core of it. This is kind of like a business who has a wonderful marketing strategy and a really bad product. You know? That's what it would be. That's what happens to us sometimes. Have you ever seen that? Where, you know, okay, you got a great marketing scheme. The commercials on TV are hilarious. There's these viral videos you get on the internet or whatever. But then you go and use the product and you're like, this is useless. You know? That's what it would be like if we pursued evangelism at the expense of diving deep into God and into the community of church. You see, what happens in this passage is these people don't focus on growing the church. They focus on God and on wrapping themselves in this word and digging deep into this word. If you know me, and some of you do, you know my heart for evangelism. I am, like, you know, we each get gifts to help the body out with and everything. I am more passionate about evangelism when it comes to my gift. My natural desire is evangelism. Like, I want to see more and more and more people step into a relationship with God. So there's no sense in this thing at which I am trying to impede evangelistic work. Jesus told us our job is to make more disciples. But here's the deal. The effectiveness of these people in the job that he, they have been called to do is found largely in developing the quality of the product instead of marketing Jesus. And what the problem is, is that sometimes if we just go after selling Jesus and selling church, we're more interested in growing church than we are in actually being church. And we get things messed up. This is exactly what happened in the Spanish Inquisition. You know about the Spanish Inquisition? It's one of the deepest, darkest scars in world history. And it happened in the name of Jesus. You know why? 
because people felt the need to proclaim the gospel and to get converts because they felt bad if they weren't doing what it is that Jesus told them to do. So what they would do is they would torture people until they confessed Christ and then they'd kill them before they had a chance to change their mind. Welcome to heaven. That is the Spanish Inquisition. And what that is, is when you get the cart before the horse, when you don't go back and read the blueprints, and you realize when you look back to the origin, that's not how they did evangelism. They weren't trying to sell Jesus. What they were trying to do was know Jesus and live within the Word and allow the power of God to be present in them and to love one another and to be in constant prayer. And when we do that, what happens? The Lord adds to our number daily those who are being saved. These days, we don't have Spanish Inquisitions. That doesn't really happen. That wouldn't fly too well, at least not in America. You know? What we do have is we have a whole different kind of church that just works really hard at growing the church. And it'll try to appeal people so they'll come in the doors of a church. And we can pew by pew or seat by seat expand church buildings and, and the attendance of our church. And yet the statistics are very clear. There's so many churches that are growing in size and growing in attendance and the kingdom of God is not growing in them because people's lives are not being changed within them. And if people's lives are not being changed, then we're not actually spreading the kingdom of God because the kingdom of God is not about selling Jesus and getting more people to affirm that Jesus is something. What the kingdom of God is, it is about spreading something, but it's about spreading the glory of God. And the glory of God is God's character revealed. That's what the glory of God is. So God's love and the joy of God and the justice of God and the peace of God, when those things come and consume me and are revealed in my life and the Holy Spirit comes and it dwells within me, then my life begins to look pure. It becomes obedient to God. It's in submission to Him. It's full of joy and it overflows with love. And all of a sudden, I'm revealing the glory of God and I'm spreading the glory of God. And when that happens, it becomes contagious something happens if you've known a Christian who, who absorbs themselves in the word of God and is deeply following God in prayer out of the desire of their heart you watch something inside of them the way they act their whole demeanor everything about them is different than your average Joe or Jane and there's something about them and that's the spreading of God's glory that's the spreading of his kingdom and that thing it can't be imparted to someone else unless it's possessed by you you can't impart what you don't possess you can't give a gift that you don't yet have you know and this is what's going on is that instead of spending their time trying to spread uh, you know pixie dust of Jesus and sell the church out here they're digging deep into the word of God into prayer into fellowship and breaking bread they're going after this stuff and because of it the answer the, the results of that is that God is spreading his kingdom and sometimes when it comes to pursuing God he gives us these responsibilities and, uh, and we have to just trust him that he can bear the fruit of those things, that he can make them happen. Sometimes we don't have the ability to make it all happen. And so what do we have to do? Depend on him. We're dependents. And if we're dependents, then God comes and dwells within us. And then what's impossible for us is not impossible for him. So what do we focus on? Do we focus on getting the job done? No, we focus on depending on him learning more and more how to depend on him. That's what we're about. That's the first point, the order of this passage. That's the first point we need to see. There's another point we need to see. And, and that's that in this verse in Acts 
2.42. It says that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, and to the breaking of the bread, and to prayer. These are the, we're going to break down these four sections. The apostles' teaching. Next week, we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about a community is a, a people gathered around the word. Okay? So we're going to talk about the word. The next week, we're going to talk about fellowship. We're going to talk about what it means to live in community and what it means to, to be in friendship with one another, friendship that really bears fruit. And then to the breaking of bread. This is like communion, ordinances, baptism, marriage, the anointing with oil, all the practices of the church, the, the rites of the church that, that we're called to walk within, and then to prayer. And I, I, I cannot even wait for the prayer week. I'm telling you, I'm so excited about it. And those, this four weeks, it's just going to be awesome. And we're looking at these ancient practices. that these, This is the blueprints. This is how they worked. This is what they did. This is what they focused on. And so we're looking back at these blueprints and saying, is this what we're doing? Is this what we're about? And to what degree? And, and all that. And that's what we're going to be doing over the next four weeks is breaking that down. However, none of those words are the operative words of this verse. What's the operative word in this verse? Devoted. Devoted is the operative word. In this verse. And if, you wanna, if we want to get the, to the point about the word, about teaching, about fellowship, about breaking bread, and about prayer, if we skip over this word to get there, it's not going to help us. It's not going to help us at all. So before we talk about those four things, we need to talk about this one word right here, and it's called devoted. What does devoted mean? Well, I want to read you a couple definitions. Well, first of all, there's a, a dictionary definition here of the word devoted. It says to give all or a large part of one's time or resources to something. So if you give all of your time or resources or a large part of your time or resources to something, that's how the dictionary defines devotion, okay? If I'm just giving myself to something, completely giving myself to something, that's devotion. Here's how, excuse me, in the original, apparently, according to the scholars, this is the, uh, this is the connotation that's carried in this Greek word for devotion. Excuse me. Steadfast, single-minded fidelity to a certain course of action. Steadfast, single-minded fidelity to a certain course of action. This is, remember, we were climbing up the hill, and we're looking back and seeing if it's a straight line, seeing if it's single-mindedness, if it's steady, if it's in the same course of action, if, we've, if there's been fidelity to this course of action or if we've deviated from the path. Devotion is that I am all about this thing. Now listen, what this doesn't say is that they had an interest in the word of God and in prayer and in fellowship. It's not an interest. You know what interest is? That means if I have an interest in, if I have an interest in golf, what do I do? I turn on the TV and watch golf, right? So it's not just about interest. If I have interest in church, well, you know, I might poke my head in a service here and there, you know, and see what it's about. If I have an interest in Christ, I might read a book or two here or there about Jesus. That's interest in Jesus. It doesn't say that they had a desire for these things. A desire means that my heart pounds for it a little bit, and that I like it, and I want it. Well, desire, I could have a desire for something, you know, but what's that mean? You know, I could have a desire to get in shape. That's not going to get me very far, you know, right? But then, so if we want to go uh, past desire, you get to discipline. And discipline is when you actually put stuff on there that, that, that has it take root, you know? But, but discipline, like, again, golf, I, going beyond interest in golf to discipline in golf is if I work on my game, right? And I actually am practicing it. But that's not devotion. You can have ancillary discipline in your life and still be about something else. I can be about other things, but still have disciplines in my life that are given to one thing. 
When it comes to devotion, this is single-minded fidelity to a certain course of action. You know what that means? If we were talking about golf, it'd be like, I'm a golf guy now. This is what I am. This is what I do. I'm all about it. If you know me, you know this is what I'm about, you know? And for the people in the early church, when you pull out the blueprints and you see the origin, this is what they were. They were Jesus' people. They were God people. They were followers of the way. They were children, sons, and daughters of the living God. When it came to their identity, they weren't fashion people. They weren't business people. They weren't funny people. They weren't good-looking people. They weren't this thing or that thing. You know who they were? They were God's people, and that's all they cared about. They were devoted to it. That's what it says. That word is an important word to catch. They were devoted to it. When, when Cortez landed in, uh, in Mexico, and he was you know, bent on conquest in Mexico, and so what he does, he, he lands, this is uh, 1519, I believe. He, he, they, they sail up, they land on the, on the shore, and they all get off the boats, and they get off the boats, and you know, he wants to, to conquer all of Mexico. And he, he kind of looks around, and he realizes, I don't know if these guys are actually fully with me. So you know what he does? He takes all 11 of his ships, his boats, and he burns them to the ground. There's no way out. We're devoted. He knew the cost of commitment. You know, he knew what it took. If you're actually going to be devoted to something, it means you have to let go of the other options. You have to let go of everything else. Now listen, I know many, many people who have interest in Jesus. I know more, a, a few less people, but some people who have a desire for Jesus. And then there's some other people who actually have disciplines around Jesus. But to watch someone devote their life to the pursuit of Christ, that road is narrow. And its way is difficult. And few there are who find it. To be devoted to Christ, to be devoted to following Him, means this is who I am. This is what I'm about. And you cannot be devoted to something at, without sacrificing other things. The nature of the word means that if I'm devoted to it, everything else has to be sacrificed for it. This is who I am. This is what I'm about. I am a guy who's in pursuit of Jesus. I am a dependent of God. I am a child of the living God. This is who I am. This is what I'm about. And it necessitates sacrifice, which is why there's this phrase. There's this phrase that Jesus says that just rocks our world when we hear it. He says, unless you hate your father and mother, you are not worthy to follow me. Has that ever boggled your mind that Jesus said that? Do you realize that Jesus was also the author of the Ten Commandments and the Fifth Commandment, the first one about humans, was he said, honor your father and mother? Doesn't that seem a little contradictory, Jesus? You know, you say, honor your father and mother, and then you say, unless I hate my father and mother, (laughs) I'm not worthy to follow you? When it comes to devotion to him, we need to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these other things will be added unto us. The apostles understood that they couldn't actually produce disciples unless they were first depending on God and making sure they were depending on God. And in the same way, 
what we're told is we need to devote ourselves to God. And even the most basic responsibilities in our life, providing for our family, caring for those around us, the basic things of taking care of ourselves, all of those things will be added unto us if we seek God first. This is not okay, I got the God thing over here. What do I have to do to check off the list to do what God's telling me to do? And then I can go and live my life. This is, I am going to do everything I can today and this week to figure out what it is that God wants for me and how to shape my life as deeply in submission and devotion to him as I possibly can. What does this word say about the relationships that I'm living in? What does this word say about how I engage in my workplace? What does it say about my thought life? And how can I submit to God and devote Devote myself to God, and the more I go after that, the more successful I will be in every other responsibility that he gives me. But if I don't burn my ships, and if I still think that, you know, the word of God's not quite doing it for me right now, and I'm tired, and I don't really feel like praying or reading the word, so it's this stuff that's going to satisfy me now, because I need this stuff to get me through today. Or if instead, you know, I know that God approves of me, that, that, that I'm a child of God and he loves me, but today that doesn't make me feel good enough about myself. So I'm going to go over here and I'm going to be really successful in this or I'm going to start to look like this or do this so I feel better about myself. That's not burning our ships. It's not being devoted to Christ. And then we can talk about interest in the word of God or we can talk about disciplines of prayer, but it's not devotion and we're not following the blueprint. And if we're not following the blueprint, then we can't anticipate the same results that happened in Acts chapter 2 in our own life because we're not devoted. We can't skip past the word devoted. Now, if you're like me, that discussion right there is a pretty intimidating one. That's a scary, scary set of thoughts. But this is what you need to know. If that makes you think, man, Tim is hitting it hard with us today, I'm going to have to go home and fire up my devotional life or I'm going to have to get into another Bible study or something. That's not the response that that the text is calling us to. It's really not. It's not, let's man up. That's, That's about disciplines. Devotion? You can't conjure up this kind of devotion. You can't make it happen. It has to be caught. It's a response. It's like love or gratitude. I mean, you can take someone and tell them, here's the things that you have to do for these people or this person, you know, to care for them. All right, well, I'll go and I'll do this and I'll do that. But instead, if someone falls in love with someone, they do all these good things for someone because they want to, not because they're supposed to. Devotion is a response of the heart. Deep devotion can't just be conjured up. It has to be caught. It's a response And so often we get on guilt trips and we try to force ourselves into looking more devoted to God by disciplining ourselves. And if I just do this more, you realize God is so not impressed with our disciplines. We are told in Isaiah, our righteousness is as filthy rags to him. I won't get into what filthy rags actually means in the original there, but let's just say it's nasty, okay? It's na- our righteousness to him is not that it doesn't mean anything, it's that it's nasty to him. Because if we're trying to impress him with our disciplines, 
we're throwing it in his face as if we could actually impress him when we've rejected him so hard with our lives and gone and done our own thing. And we think by putting a few disciplines in our life that all of a sudden God will think better of us. That's absolutely absurd. That ship has sailed. He doesn't care if we live righteous or not in those terms. That's bizarre. Why would we think that he cares when we've rejected him so hard, when we haven't trusted him, when we've gone our own way? It's like if you have a spouse who who cheats on the on the other spouse and they're running off doing their thing and then all of a sudden they do something nice and expect the spouse to care like are you kidding me like that's going to change this whole thing that doesn't change it that's like us with god if we try to impress him with our good works or our disciplines he doesn't care it doesn't help that ship sailed but listen listen he loves us in ways that we can't imagine not only is he not impressed with our works of righteousness? He's also not depressed because of our failures. Because he decided to jump down from heaven and land on earth and have himself nailed to a Roman cross so that when he looks at us, he can look at us with eyes of affection and with deep desire and care and respect us and adore us, not because of anything we've done, but only because of what Christ has done on the cross. And my ability to receive that is my dependence on him, to depend on him for my own sense of value, to depend on him for my own self-worth, to realize I can't impress them, I can't impress him, I can't impress anyone, but he is so impressed and the only reason he's impressed is because of what he already did on the cross and he cleansed me and he put his righteousness all over me and if I come to real terms with that if I start to process that and meditate on that and allow that to really sink in and I don't just hold it as a theology but I begin to integrate it into my life it changes me and I begin to catch something and I begin to respond differently and there's one passage of scripture that we just have to look at before we close here today to, to, to see this illustrated. This is in Luke chapter 7. And, and I need you, if you have your scripture, to look at it, but I, I really need you to hear this story. Luke chapter st- 7, starting verse 36. <clears throat> now one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him. And so he went to Jesus' house, or, <laughs> sorry, That's funny. So he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. When a woman who had lived a sinful life in that town learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster jar of perfume. And as she stood behind him at his feet weeping, if you're wondering the posture of that thing, like his feet are behind him, he's like at the table, up toward the table with his feet kind of tucked in behind him, sticking out behind him, you know? Uh, almost like in a kneeling posture, but back behind him. And she's standing there, excuse me, and verse 38, as she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who's touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she's a sinner. This is one of my favorite things that Jesus does. He answers people before they've asked a question. Verse 40, Jesus answered him. (laughs) Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two men owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii, the other 50. 
Neither of them had the money to pay him back. So he canceled the debts of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt canceled. You've judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned toward the woman and he said to Simon, do you, do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wiped my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman, from the time I entered, has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her her many sins have been forgiven, for she has loved much. But he who has been forgiven little, loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. You see what's happening here? You see the picture of it? You know who this guy is, this Pharisee? He is a person who's interested in Jesus. He's a person who has a desire to know Jesus. He's a person who even has discipline and invites Jesus over for dinner. But when this person who's interested, desiring, and disciplined is juxtaposed with a person who's devoted, they look nothing alike. They look nothing alike. You see what this woman does? She goes so far above and beyond her religious call of duty. She embarrasses herself publicly in front of all these people as she spills out her tears and she wipes his feet with her hair. And it's just an embarrassment. What are you doing? That's ridiculous. Why would you do that? And there's only one reason. That's a response. That is a response. That is not religious activity. That is not a discipline. That is a response of her awareness of who Christ is and what he provides to her. Every other man in her life has always seen her as an object to be used as they wish. She has been engaged in all sorts of activity that is completely unbiblical and totally inappropriate. And yet when Jesus looks at her, he values her as a child of God and he cares for her. And she doesn't know what to do with it other than to fall apart because she's never felt this way before. And she pursues him. And and it doesn't matter what anyone thinks. Her, Her tears well up and they fall onto his feet and she embarrasses herself. And that is the picture of devotion as opposed to just discipline. You see how much further devotion takes us than discipline? It takes us so much further. Listen, I've tried the discipline route. Believe me, I've tried the discipline route. I've been forced into the discipline route in times in my life, and I've forced myself into discipline at times in my life. And you know what? It always comes up short. Every stinking time. And at the end, I feel worse about myself than I did at the beginning, and God's no more impressed. But I'll tell you what. There was a day when I began to really come to terms with the fact of what God's love and grace meant in my life and how he really felt about me. And I began to realize his presence in my life and how he viewed me. And when that thing started to shake me to the core, it changed my life. And the reason it changed my life is because I realized, I'm like, I don't care about any of this other stuff. He delivers. He's the one who can back it up. 
I want to depend on him because he's the one who rises from the dead. He's the one who changes my life. He's the one who's got it all wrapped up. He's my creator. He holds the blueprints. He's the only one who can make it happen. He came to give me life and life abundantly. He's the one who can make me effective in what he called me to do. And guess what? Memo, I don't have the ability to do it. I need him. I desperately need him. And what's more is, is I don't deserve him. And yet he still loves me and he doesn't even embarrass me. He's actually super excited to have me. And I don't know why, but all I know is, is I want to follow him. Because who else is like that? No one. No one else is like that. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. So I want to ask us as we climb up the hill and clear out the trees and we look back to the beginning and we read the blueprints and and we're going to go into these ancient practices that have untold potential for our church. If we, were, if we were to engage in these practices the way they engaged in those practices, it, it has untold potential to change not only our own lives, but the world around us. However, we can't get to those practices until we get to this word devoted. And so as we stand up on the hill 2,000 years later and we look all the way back and we look at the blueprints and we look at the origin, we have to ask the first question, are we devoted? Are we devoted? Not are we interested, are we inspired, are we disciplined, none of that. Are we devoted? Is this who we are? Is this what I'm about? If you're here and you're not devoted, there's no condemnation, okay? I'm not throwing stones. That's not, devotion doesn't happen by conjuring it up. But if you're here and you wish that you were devoted, then it's time to be on our knees the way they were in that upper room, you know? And just saying, God, we need you to do this. Do it in me. Change me. Because I can't be this way. I can't be devoted like that. That's not, I don't know how to do that. That's got to be a work of you. I would love to be more interested in you than I am in my TV. I would love to be more interested in you than I am in my success at work. I would love to be more interested in you than I am in how I appear to other people. I would love that. But you know what? I'm not there, and I've tried that, and it hasn't worked. So God, come and help me to burn down these boats so that I can head into the interior of your word and mine the depths of it and find you present within it and love to go to prayer. Change me, change our church. I desperately need you, Holy Spirit. Come and make me like the blueprints of the early church. Let's pray.